Hello, welcome to my study and to this short presentation on the end of the Second World War, its consequences and in particularly its legacies. Now, this year sees the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. 75 years is a rather long time span. It's basically a human lifespan. And you might ask the question, why is the Second World War still relevant? How does it still influence our lives in 2020? It doesn't at all. And of course, I would argue that it does, because let's face it, otherwise I wouldn't be giving this presentation. When we look at legacies for people and for nations, this of course is a, is a very tricky and complex matter because every person has got its own legacy, its own experience, its own family history. And in order to understand the overall complexities of these matters, we really should look at every single uh, experience, personal experience in every single country. Only this would form uh, the, the perfect view and the perfect analysis of this particular matter. Of course, this is not possible to do. It's not possible to do for anybody and it's particularly not possible to do in a rather short presentation such as this. So in order to make it more manageable, when we talk about legacies, I am talking about what you can perhaps with a rather broad brush and perhaps a bit of a crude term call the, the national legacy, the national memory. We need to remember that this is not 100% accurate because even if you have a generally adopted view on a certain uh, event, on, on certain things, of course it means that there, there are um, opposing and differing views within a certain country, within a, within a certain social group and so on and so forth. But probably for the, the aim of this particular lecture, this idea works rather well because the main aim of this presentation is to show how this legacy influences national thinking and how this in turn then impacts on uh, state actors on the international stage and how these actions make things relevant for us today also in different countries. If you're interested in the, the general idea of this, you might want to consult a very short commentary that I wrote uh, for Chaser and you can find it on the Chaser webpage. In that particular commentary, I touch on Britain, Germany and France. I only really scratched the surface, to be perfectly honest. And so I would like to use this particular opportunity to go into a bit more depth and to analyze one country a bit more. It's still not going to be 100% exhaustive. There's still going to be much more that needs to be said, but it's a starting point. And I have chosen Germany as an example. And the reason for this is that you can probably see the legacies of World War II and the importance of the Second World War for current affairs, for current thinking, for, current, for the current mood in the population in its clearest in this particular country. I'm going to start with a little bit of context. So give you a little bit of history, not really of uh, the war itself, because I think we're all reasonably familiar with that but with a little bit of post-war history and in particular trying to show how the the impact of the war and the, the memory of the war has shaped german political and also military thinking i will then look in a bit more detail at the political implications and will then finish with some thoughts on the military itself so when we look at Germany in 1945, Germany surrenders on the 8th of May 1945, and there can be no question about that, that Germany, of course, was utterly defeated. 
the cities were destroyed. Um, about 8 million people had died, both civilians and uh, military people. And about a third of the territory was cut off in the aftermath of the war and given to other countries, in particular Russia and Poland. The people living in that particular territory had to be had to move to Western territories, so they were basically expelled. Now, this, of course, is uh, not something that only the German experienced. So there was widespread destruction in uh, in Europe. There were millions of displaced people, but of course, the Germans also have to live with the, the national guilt, you might say, of the Shoah, the extermination of the Jews, and the general oppressiveness of the Nazi regime, both within Germany and, of course, in the occupied territories. And it is quite easy to say, well, Germany was defeated and Germany was divided and lots of people died and the cities were destroyed and, uh, and so on. But we really need to understand what impact that has had on the German national psyche. Perhaps it might be an idea to, to use a different country and play the scenario through. So let's use Britain. Um, just imagine for a moment that Britain had been defeated in World War II. As a consequence, Scotland is cut off and is given to, let's say, Norway. All the Scots are expelled and have to move to England and Wales. A big border is built all the way down uh, from the northern border between Scotland and England to the south coast and you're no longer able to move freely from west to east, so say, for example, from Cardiff to, uh, to Leicester. The capital, London, is divided into four different sectors. Uh, a big wall is built around it, and there's also another build, a wall built in the center of it. The entire old center of London is blown up, and that means Trafalgar Square, Piccadilly Circus, and all of Whitehall disappears, and this becomes a death strip because that is also the internal border. So this is basically the scenario you have to look at when you look at the division um, of Germany after the Second World War. And of course the understanding and the feeling really was in Germany that Germany had been utterly defeated. Again, there could be no question about that. There was a big difference between 1945 and 1918. Actually, one of the reasons why the Allies relatively early on in World War II decide on the demand of an unconditional surrender of Germany is that they wanted to prevent something like 1918 from happening again. A famous Frenchman once said that uh, the end of the First World War was not uh, a proper end to the war, but it was basically just a truce for 20 years because of the Versailles Treaty. And so the Allies, you might say, really wanted to hammer it into the heads of the Germans that they had lost the war, so they wouldn't have another round and round three 20 years later. And this view then really changes, or not really changes, but changes to a degree in the 1960s. And there are a number of reasons for that. And so the main reasons are probably that, first of all, the old guards, the people who had lived and worked during the, uh, the Nazi period, and most of them, most of particularly the elites, stayed in place after the end of the Second World War. So these are, these are now retiring, the new generation comes forward. And in particular, you have to see that in relation to the student, the so-called student revolution, which first occurs in, in the US and then comes across the, uh, the pond, the Atlantic, to in particular France and Germany. And these young generation, uh, th this young generation now starts asking probing questions, something like, Daddy, what did you do during the war? And this, together with the fact that you now have a number of 
um, of court trials to do with the Holocaust really opens the eyes to, to everybody, um, perhaps you might say to people who didn't want to see things beforehand um, about the, uh, the Nazi atrocities and uh, to the general oppressiveness of the Nazi regime. And so for the first time, you really have a change uh, in, in German public thinking and amongst the, you might say, the general mood, the general perception of the population after, after the war. Having said that, of course, you still have a lot of people who had uh, personal experience, again, who'd lost people uh, whose houses would have been bombed, things like this. And so, of course, they're the feeling that they've been liberated. It was perhaps not all that dominant, in particular, um, of course, in what now became Eastern Germany, so the GDR, that had been uh, liberated by uh, the, uh, the Soviets and the Red Army. And so you have a bit of a, of a balance, perhaps you might say a bit of a mishmash in the, uh, in, in the population. The population is to a degree a little bit divided. And this again changes slightly with a very famous speech by the then president von Weizsäcker, who gives the speech in German parliament in 1985, so at the 40th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And this was probably one of the most influential and important speeches ever made in German Parliament after 1945. And it's a rather long speech. And to sum it up, he basically said that the 8th of May 1945, so the day when Germany surrendered, was a day of both liberation and defeat, for personal reasons, reasons and also for the state itself. And this became the general understanding. So yes, Germany had been liberated, but internally as individuals, you could still mourn the loss of life and, uh, and things like that. And again, there was then, uh, you might perhaps say, a slight change, probably about 10 or 15 years ago. And it's, it's, it's a gradual process. So there was no particular uh, event that really shaped that. But you can now see, and particularly when you look at the media, when you look at the way also politicians talk, um, that there is now the growing understanding that Germany was predominantly liberated and at the end of the Second World War. And you can see this, for example, in the current ongoing debate, whether the 8th of May should be classed as a bank holiday to celebrate the liberation from the Nazi regime. And underlying all this are the, what you might call the, the founding myths of, in particularly, Western Germany. And these founding myths, which run all the way through from 1945, then the foundation of the Federal Republic of Germany in 1949, all the way up to, to 2020, are first and foremost, this must never happen again. So something like the Nazi regime, something like the Second World War, must be avoided at all costs. And the second one, in this, particular, in this particular model is that never again shall a war be started on German soil. So these, you might say, became the two pillars or perhaps the two, the two mantras of, of German political thinking and also to a large degree of German society after 1945. And you can see that in a number of specific events. So for example, when Germany, West Germany and also the GDR started rearming in the 1950s, this was extremely heavily opposed by the population. The, uh, the reason for the, re the rearmament, both in the West and also in the East, were mainly political because they ensured that the Federal Republic and the GDR could be integrated into, into their blocs and they could be seen as a valuable partner trying to overcome 
to a certain degree, the consequences of the Second World War. The Germans, as I said, were utterly opposed to it. Um, the general feeling was that Germany is done with fighting. And this is actually a feeling that you still find today very widespread in German society, and that's also in German politics, because politics in a, in a democracy is, of course, influenced by public opinion and by the public mood. You then have a number of other events that also show this, this general reluctance to engage with uh, military matters and also matters of general questions of security and defense. To mention just a few, um, you had, for example, the, uh, the German national election in the early 2000s. At that time, we had a left-leaning coalition of the SPD and the Grünen, so basically the Green Party as the, uh, the minor partner together with the, uh, the German Labour Party. And in the polls, this party was quite behind the conservative, conservative challenges. In the run-up to the Iraq war, uh, the then Chancellor Schroeder uh, promised that he would keep Germany out of that particular war, whereas on the conservative side, there had been voices that Germany would actually get involved. And it was mainly on this particular ticket that uh, Schröder managed to, to win this particular election and to change the mood within the population. Um, as a personal example, this was the first and only time that my father voted for the Labour Party, German Labour Party, because he said, and I quote, I don't want my boys to go to war. We've lost enough people in the last one and uh, this is enough and we don't want to see that again. So again, a general feeling, a general view that Germany should not really engage in military matters. And you can also see that at the, uh, with the development of German military operations under umbrellas of internationalizations like NATO, like the UN and what have you. Again, these remain very unpopular and they still are quite unpopular in Germany. Um, and the German politics, you might say, took a rather clever and very gradual approach and they started deploying the German military uh, in the 1960s on humanitarian missions. So for example, to Cambodia. Uh, we then have uh, other missions, like for example, in Somalia, which got a bit more heated than uh, originally thought. And the big watershed in all this was probably the deployment of uh, the Bundeswehr to the Balkans in the 1990s. And this is a really interesting example because you can see how politics had to shape the view and the, and the understanding and the feeling of the population in order to gain support for this operation. Again, to begin with, it was a highly unpopular operation and the deployment of German troops was decided again by the, the left coalition of the German Labour Party together with the Green Party. At that time, Germany had Foreign Minister Joschka Fischer from the Green Party, and he tried to convince the, the German population by saying that Germany had to engage military to prevent a second Auschwitz and a second, uh, second Holocaust in the Balkans. And the moment in Germany you use this particular example and you start talking about the Holocaust and, uh, and the extermination of the Jews, you basically end any argument. Uh, in Germany, this is also called the Holocaust maze because you just whack it on people's heads and there's nothing that people can say. And they managed actually not only to do that, but it was a rather strong and powerful argument, which they won. And for the first time, really, the, the Bundeswehr deployed uh, combat forces and, and ground troops into a theater of operations. And this moves, uh, moves on, and we can even see this uh, playing out in current operations, um, in particular, of course, Afghanistan. The deployment of the German force to Afghanistan 
has remained extremely unpopular in, in Germany, in particularly when it became clear that the army actually had to do some fighting and they were not there, as had been told to the population, as you might say, some sort of armed uh, technical aid branch, uh, which would be drilling wells and, and, and do nation building. So it turned out that this was all a bit more difficult. And as a consequence of that, the official slogan that Germany's security had to be defended at the Hindu Kush, which had been used by the then German defense minister, never really got any traction within the German population. And it's interesting to see that when it comes to questions of defense, security, and, and matters in this particular realm, there's a certain lack, a very distinct lack of uh, general debate in Germany. Um, you don't have any input from the military, which might be understandable because they're not uh, able to, uh, to speak freely, but even within Parliament, in particular within society, there are no uh, deep debates about these matters. So the feeling still is that Germany is very much done with fighting and Germany does not want to go back to being a major military uh, player in the world. Now this probably doesn't come as a surprise to most people, um, but it perhaps shows, and the context shows where all this comes from. So very often, of course, we hear on the international stage that Germany needs to start playing a more active role, generally speaking, international politics, and also in particular in the realm of defense and military engagements. And this, of course, is, is an extremely valid argument, because Germany, as one of the biggest economic uh, players in the world, should do that. And should also be able, like uh, most other countries, to openly and freely express that by deploying military forces, it is protecting its own interests. Germany is not able to do that. The last time a German president said that, and that was in relation to uh, the deployment in Afghanistan, um, he had to step down very, very soon afterwards. Not only because of this, but it was also a contributing factor which was used against it. So military force and uh, military power play, you might say, on the international stage is nothing that the Germans really want to do, really want to see, and that the German public would really accept. So this idea of Germany having to play a larger role is an extremely valid argument, but it doesn't wash with the Germans themselves. And the international stage needs to understand that. And only very, very gradually and slowly have we seen a certain shift in this, in particular, as I said, from uh, perhaps uh, the deployment to, uh, to uh, uh, the Balkans. But nevertheless, um, even if it will change fundamentally, it will take many more years until Germany will play a really active role in these matters. And of course, um, as I've just briefly shown, the direct consequence, uh, it is a direct consequence of the legacy of the Second World War. And Germans simply do not, can go over this particular experience. What we then also have, of course, is um, at the political stage, the lesson of the, uh, of the, uh, the Second World War, and the Germans drew the lesson that the only way to overcome nationalism and general division of Europe and the world is by international cooperation. You can see that at the military level, which of course was also to a degree enforced onto the Germans at that particular time when the German army rearmed. The German army is very heavily integrated in particular into NATO. Uh, you will, for example, not find a national German Corps command or German Corps commands like, for example, the German Dutch Corps in Münster are all at least uh, binational. 
And you will also find that, of course, at the pure political stage, Germany has opted for very deep integration. And of course, the, uh, the main key word here is the EU. Now, we need to understand the history of the EU a little, and in, in combination with the, the legacy of the Second World War, in order to understand the, the Germans' view on the EU and the history of the EU and the importance of the EU. Because it is, it is fair to say that, despite what you hear from lots of other countries, that when you look at the, the sheer economic power and the number of Germans living in Germany compared to other countries, Germany is not actually really flexing its muscles on the international stage, including the EU. They could make more demands, but they're not, because they're willing to, to play or to step back a bit in order to keep the European process and European integration going. Now, the two pillars of the EU have traditionally been, first of all, of course, the economic pillar. Uh, it started in the 1950s and then uh, intensified in the 1960s uh, and, and the subsequent years. First of all, with the, uh, the, the French-German Union of, of steel and coal, uh, which was also, of course, slightly designed by the French to keep the Germans down in the German economic power and to control it a little. Of course, then we have the European uh, community, the European market, and the full EU as we see it today. And that's the economic pillar. And that, of course, is extremely important. And uh, we all understand that other countries have bought into the EU mainly for these reasons. For the Germans, it was always a bit different. And you have to say that perhaps these days, this pillar, the economic pillar, is becoming more important. Also, of course, uh, in, the, in the current crisis that we see at the moment and the economic crisis as a consequence of Corona even though it is interesting to see that the EU does not really seem to be playing a vital role and we see a bit of renationalization. But nevertheless, the second pillar has always been at least as important to Germans than, uh, than the first pillar, the economic pillar. And this pillar is really the pillar of European integration because the Germans realized after 1945, in order to not let this ever happen again, reconciliation um, had to be achieved. And of course, first of all, this was the Axis Berlin-Paris, and it still is, and that is the driving motor behind European integration. And when you look at the way the European Union and this particular pillar developed, you can really see the sincerity behind this. You had a very strong movement in lots of European countries, continental European countries in particular, in the 1950s and 1960s to, to break down the national, the national boundaries and to really forge some sort of a European community, a European spirit, a European nation, probably is too strong a word. And when we look at, uh, just to give you one example, two of the, the most important leaders of the well, national leaders who also had a very important impact on the EU, uh, François Mitterrand in France and Helmut Kohl in Germany, these have been directly affected by the war. François Mitterrand had uh, fought in the, in the Second World War and Helmut Kohl, he um, had been too young, but uh, his brother had been killed in the war. So again, you can see there's a direct link and there's a direct legacy. And of course, when these people become national leaders of their countries, this personal experience also has an impact on the, the national experience and the way uh, national politics will be done or has, was done based on the historical examples. Now, it's interesting to see that at the moment, as I said earlier, the, the second, well, the first pillar, the economic pillar, seems to be slightly more important. And the question is, why is that? Uh, my personal argument would be that from a continental European point of view, you might perhaps say that the second pillar has fallen victim to its own success because we've had the longest period of peace in, in Europe. And... Uh, 
we don't have a direct direct link anymore to uh, the horrors of war. As I said earlier, 75 years have passed since the Second World War and uh, the younger generations and also of course uh, the political leaders at this particular time do no longer have the direct link to this. So this you might say is perhaps one reason why we, why we see the renationalization of, uh, of European politics as we see it in the current crisis. And when we bring that back a little bit and, uh, and also look at the personal involvement, the personal development in the German case, there is some, some interesting facts uh, with regards to German politicians. So I already alluded to, to Helmut Kohl. Uh, we could also talk about Konrad Adenauer, the very first chancellor of, um, of Germany. And where you can see a rather interesting shift in all this, which also impacted to a degree on, on the national view, is when Schröder becomes chancellor in the late 1990s, because he was the very first chancellor who had not been directly affected by the war. Well, that's not quite true because his father was killed. Um, but he once said uh, in, in a speech, well, I wasn't there. I, I did not commit these atrocities. So yes, we have a national responsibility, but it's not my own responsibility. And that changed to a degree the thinking in Germany as well a little and suddenly it became possible again to talk publicly about about personal loss. This had been really not possible perhaps since the 1960s since you had this change the first big change in the in the national understanding and the concentration on the atrocities committed by by the Germans and and by the Nazis but suddenly it became possible again and perhaps the the game changer really was an interesting book uh, by a German historian, uh, a man called Jörg Friedrich, um, who wrote a book called Der Brand, which translates as The Fire, in which he basically lists all the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the bomber raids on, on German cities during the Second World War. And this started discussion about German suffering, about German loss of life, German loss of, um, of, of cultural goods, of buildings and all these things. And normally, probably, this this book and this this discussion would have led to a bit of an outcry because you say how can you do this how can you start thinking about your own losses when you were responsible for this because you started the war probably what helped in this particular respect what there's what there's was that Friedrich himself was um, a historian of the Holocaust. He had studied the other side as well, and so he had for that you might say some authority to be talking about the German suffering as well. Nevertheless. It's also fair to say that in the current debate that you see in Germany at the moment, uh, you have slightly uh, more, for a better term, perhaps uh, uh, extreme views developing. And I already alluded to the fact that there's now an ongoing discussion about whether Germany should adopt the 8th of May as the day of liberation. Whereas of course, in the other camp, the more conservative camp, uh, this is being uh, refused and uh, an idea that's not been accepted. But it seems to me at least that this idea of, uh, of liberation is now the, uh, the predominant view in Germany and it keeps growing. And I personally wouldn't be surprised if in a few years time we would see the 8th of May as a national bank holiday in Germany. So what does all that mean for the military itself? Well, first of all, we have of course to understand, and that should not be um, anything new or anything terribly exciting to you, that militaries do not operate in a vacuum. Militaries are always heavily influenced by, uh, of course, political decisions, by national decisions, and they're also influenced by societies, because let's face it, the soldiers come from the societies uh, they, they recruit from. And in the German case, again, you can see that uh, it's a rather interesting and perhaps to a degree, a slightly, for a better phrase, um, extreme example. 
because the Germans very early on when they founded the, uh, the Bundeswehr in West Germany in 1955, they made the decision that the, the German soldier should no longer only be a soldier, but he should also be, as the German uh, statement goes, be a citizen in uniform. And this was a hundred degree turn from previous experience because up to 1945, for example, German soldiers had not been allowed to vote because the idea was that you serve the state, but you don't serve any particular parties. And the German army moved away from that completely. Uh, German soldiers can now vote, you can be voted into parliament, uh, things like that, they're perfectly acceptable. You also had a new general ethos, uh, which is um, again based on the, the idea of the citizen in, uh, in uniform, which is called Führung, which is very difficult to translate. And you might perhaps say it translates as internal leadership. It doesn't really capture it. It's, it's really, it's an ethos of an army which is based on this idea of uh, the citizen in, in uniform. This caused, or the adoption of this caused uh, a massive debate in the German armed forces up to the 1970s, because the, uh, the old guards did not really accept it and they said we should be concentrating on what an army is there for, uh, what uh, the Wehrmacht had always been good at and that is actually fighting war. So we should be really concentrating on the, the tactical and the operational uh, planning of wars and campaigns and we shouldn't really be start, uh, we shouldn't really start meddling in political affairs and having political affairs and this perhaps you might say slightly civilian attitude of the, of the, uh, the citizen in uniform, um, in inverted commas weakening the, uh, the combat power of the soldiers. This debate, which is a very complex one, and I don't want to go in, into much detail because, again, you need an entire lecture series on that. Um, this debate continued to degree. It still continues today, uh, uh, even though at, at a much, much lower level. Nevertheless, this whole, uh, this whole idea of the citizen uniform was adopted as a consequence of the Second World War. And you might perhaps say the underlying principle of this really is that if you have a well-trained and also well-educated soldier, they know what they're fighting for. They're not only obeying orders, but they fight because they want to fight. It's a very broad brush, it's very crude, but that perhaps gives you an idea. Of course, that also means that you have to open the army a little bit. And of course, the Germans had to do that anyway, because it's an army based on conscription. Armies based on conscription tend to be more open uh, for, for changes and developments in society, simply because they have a very large influx of large men into the armed forces. And you can see it in the German army as well. The most infamous example probably is um, uh, from the 1970s, when of course in those days everyone had long hair, uh, the, uh, the soldiers didn't want to have their hair cut, so basically hairnets were introduced. Um, even the military realized that that was a very silly idea and they were phased out again very, very quickly. But it's always used as an example to show this interaction and the openness of the military for uh, changes in society itself. And when we look at the, the pure military planning of things, and the military action, so the core business of the military. Again, you can see a rather interesting development in, the, in, in, the, in Germany after the Second World War. So to begin with, everyone in Germany was very much planning for to a degree a replay, let's say, of the Second World War. The German army had been very good at what it did at the tactical operational level. The Western Allies were very keen to learn from the Germans in this particular respect, and the Germans tried to concentrate on, uh, on what they were good at. So fighting a mechanized war, an armored war against the Soviets. And of course, in the context of the 1950s, 60s, the Cold War and all that, that of course made sense uh, to, to the military thinkers. Um, in the Western case, for example, a number of retired German generals were writing studies 
for the Western armies analyzing the war in the East and so not only analyzing it, but also giving indirect and also very direct um, advice to the Western armies on how you should fight a conventional war against the East. The German army, of course, was also to degree quite lucky. And that applies to both the Western army and the, and, and the, Eastern, and the Eastern army in the GBR because this was the time of the Cold War. So the armies were actually not really required to fight. So the emphasis was on deterrence. The general perception is that uh, the, both German armies were uh, extremely competent, uh, probably amongst the most competent in their, in their respective blocs, so NATO and the Warsaw Pact. But they also didn't really have to deal with questions of military operations and uh, sending troops uh, into out-of-air operations outside, outside of NATO, outside of the, uh, the Warsaw Pact, because that was not really their task. So the official slogan in the, in the Bundeswehr, for example, in those days was being, a, being able to fight in order not to fight. And that, of course, suited the army also quite well, because as I said, it, it meant that you didn't have to engage with this political discussion about sending troops abroad and having really to deal with the underlying historical issues that then, for example, came up again when deployments to, to Kosovo happened, because that, of course, had been, um, had been occupied by uh, the Wehrmacht in, uh, in the Second World War. So it suited them quite well. And then, of course, we have the end of the Cold War. And this comes as a bit of a, I wouldn't say, well, shock to the system, but it made people think. So the whole idea of deterrence has gone. The German army or the German military um, has a very clear purpose, which is uh, written down in the German constitution. It was in very clear words in those days, which says that Germany uh, maintains armed forces for the defense of its own territory. You were not able to send troops anywhere else. And of course, again, during the Cold War, that was exactly what would have happened, because if the, war had, the Cold War had turned hot, the fighting would have happened on German territory. So you didn't really have to think about this. But now, of course, you have situations like Somalia. You now have then situations like, like Kosovo and, uh, and uh, the Balkans. And how do you deal with this? And this was a very, very difficult situation, not only for the German military, but for German politicians. Somalia was perhaps a bit easier, because at least to begin with, you might say it, it was sold as a humanitarian um, um, uh, intervention or operation, for a better term. Um, and so you got away with it. Um, Kosovo was different because right from the beginning, it was obvious that you would have to send combat troops, you would have to, you have to engage perhaps a bit more robustly. And you can see in the development within the German discussion, I've already alluded to it when I talked about the German foreign minister, that this was a rather unpopular discussion. There were actually a number of, of Air Force pilots who resigned from the Air Force when they were told that they would have to fly missions over the Balkans because they, they said, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for based on the constitution. I signed up for to defend Germany. This is something completely different. I'm not doing it. So it was a rather painful process, both for the entire nation, but also for the military to, to accept that. And when we go to more recent operations, like for example, and in particular, Afghanistan, we can still see the tension that you find. On the pure military side of things, this tension is probably less there than it was um, in there in, uh, at the end of the Cold War, because we now have a new generation of, um, of soldiers. If you were a soldier during the beginning of the, uh, the Kosovo crisis or the Balkans crisis, you had signed up as, let's, let's face it, let's call it a Cold War warrior. 
a very certain set of ideas and uh, values and why you wanted to join the army. As I said earlier, mainly to defend Germany, to act as a deterrent, and so on and so forth. In Afghanistan, of course, you might say it's different. Despite the, uh, the official statement by the then German foreign minister, defense minister, sorry, that Germany has, or Germany has also been defended at the Hindu Kush, which never really um, caught the attention of the German public and they never, never really bought into this. But nevertheless, the soldiers now, of course, are, for a better term, a different breed. They know if you sign up, you're now going to go onto operations because the, uh, the German highest court uh, made a number of rulings which make these operations possible under very, very specific conditions. So uh, again, the Balkans was probably the first one. We now have Afghanistan. You then have a mission in Iraq. You also have a mission in Mali. So these things are now possible. And when you, when you sign on the dotted line and you become a soldier, you basically accept that this might happen. It does not mean that the German population has really bought into this. And again, I already mentioned the, the Germany has defended at the Hindu Kush, example and quote from the German defense minister. The military operations that the German armed forces are conducting at the moment still remain extremely unpopular. Afghanistan is a very good example of this. Uh, you probably found one of the highest uh, uh, rates in the polls against any military operations in the entire world in, in Germany. And you can still see that in, in this general lack of uh, of a debate of matters of defense, security, and, and also to a large degree, general uh, international relations on the whole in Germany. So these are, these are things that are not really being discussed in Germany, uh, even today. And again, you can make the clear and direct link back to, to the legacy of the Second World War, this whole idea of on German soil, never shall another war be started, and things like that we already talked about. And when you bring it even one level further down, you look at the military itself, it also has had impacts and, um, and also the whole legacy has come with issues. So we already talked about the, the citizen in uniform, this whole construct, so basically completely new understanding of what it means to be a soldier. You're no longer just receiving orders from the state and you carry them out. No, you're an integral part of that particular state and you actually have a say, which as you can imagine uh, in certain situations can uh, create some difficulties in particular perhaps in, in, in an army based on conscription where you have all sorts of different ideas, different, different views, different perceptions floating in. And of course Germany ha has subsequently stopped um, conscription and it's now a fully professional army even though there is a little bit of debate in Germany at the moment whether some sort um, or some form of national service should be brought back. Uh, my personal view is it's not going to happen you know, for all sorts of reasons um, but the debate is, is starting um, at uh, a very, very low level, and we'll have to see where this leads. But this debate about the, the citizen uniform and this whole question of what's, um, what's, what is the army actually for, what are we doing as soldiers, um, also shows a little bit of an insecurity that you can see in the German military and even today. And again, this, this, this is very clearly linked to the experience of the Second World War, because the Wehrmacht, of course, um, contributed to the atrocities. And again, you can see, you can see a development in the understanding. In the early years, up to, again, probably the 1960s, the general view and the accepted view 
was that the German army had fought honorably. And so there were a number of, um, of quotes and, and famous people who always put forward to, to prove that point. For example, Eisenhower made the statement that the Wehrmacht had fought honorably. Um, Konrad Adenauer, the, uh, the first chancellor of West Germany, said something, something alike in German parliament. And of course, you have to see it in the context. Because in the 1950s and 60s, particularly the 1950s, um, the, the Western bloc is, of course, interested in bringing Western, Western Germany into its bloc. First of all, to, let's face it, to control it, but also because they, they know of the, uh, the German military ability and they're looking, uh, they're looking for troop numbers because they know that the, the Eastern bloc, the Warsaw Pact, has numerical superiority on the field of battle. So um, stroking the German soul, so to speak, um, might work wonders and might push the Germans into that particular into that particular camp. You find the same on the German side because Arnau was very clear that uh, he wanted West integration because he saw that as the solution to to many of Germany's problems. And uh, if he played that game well, he would then be able to do this and to achieve this integration. For that, he said we need an army, and he pushed through rearmament in West Germany against, as I earlier said, the the will of the population. And this whole debate then uh, basically comes to an end for a number of years, and it only really re-emerges then in the 1960s, where the student revolution in particular, in, in Germany also in the 1990s, when there was an exhibition on the, on, on the atrocities of the Wehrmacht, which caused a, a huge discussion in, inside Germany. And uh, for the very first, not for the first time, but perhaps for the first time publicly, really people start engaging with the role of the Wehrmacht in the Second World War. And the, the German armed forces were, you might say, ahead of this game. And uh, the German army or the German armed forces is probably the only armed force in the world that actually has a set of regulations uh, for tradition. And what constitutes a tradition is extremely heavily regulated. And, uh, and it's very, very clear that, for example, the Wehrmacht, the German army for the German armed forces of the Second World War, as an institution, cannot be the foundation, cannot be the basis of any sort of tradition. Um, so it was very, very clear on that. Um, there were a number of, um, of different versions of this, what in German called Traditionserlass. Um, I don't want to go into detail because, again, it's, it's a very complex, a very political discussion that you can face. But it is, it is uh, worth noting that the last time it was updated was only um, about a year ago as a consequence of uh, some, some events within the German military uh, where some people thought that there was some sort of neo-Nazi right-wing movement developing, which in my personal opinion, um, basically they made too much of it and uh, the German army does not, in my personal view, have that particular problem. But as a consequence of that, they, they, they uh, issued a new version of this particular traditions uh, so the regulations on tradition and you can see that uh, in the German military at times there's a certain insecurity about what actually forms part of a tradition and what doesn't part form part of the tradition what are we allowed to do what are we not allowed to do and you might of course argue that it's, it doesn't really matter uh, because the Bundeswehr has got its own long history um, uh, this is also being stressed now in the end the new regulations on tradition and uh, not only uh, the perhaps the combat missions in, in Afghanistan, but also contributing to peace and security in, in Europe um, as part of NATO, as part of, of, of the EU and, and all these things. But of course, the problem remains that these things are politically very sensible, but they do not really, for a better word, touch the soul of the military. 
uh, when you look at traditions and what traditions do for militaries, uh, the German army at, at the present is not really where, for example, the British army is or even the French armies or other armies are. And of course they can't be because of the experience of uh, not only one lost world war, but two lost world wars. And in particular, of course, the Shoah, the extermination of the Jews and the, uh, the, the, the armies or the German armed forces role in this. And of course, the general occupation of Europe and uh, the Nazi atrocities. So all this makes it very, very difficult. It makes a bit of a minefield for a German soldier to move in the field of tradition and move in the field of history. And as I would argue, it caused a little bit of insecurity. Does it really matter for the for people when once you're on the battlefield? Perhaps, perhaps it doesn't, uh, but it's an underlying issue that is still very much there in the German armed forces. And with this, I think I will probably finish. As I've said at the beginning, it's it's a very complex matter. Um, Germany alone uh, deserves a full lecture series on all sorts of issues uh, that we've touched upon. And we need to understand that in order to make the correct, the right, and informed decisions at the international or in the, on the international stage, we need to understand how countries view themselves, how they interpret their history, and particularly in the German case, you can see the importance of the Second World War for all this, and what makes them tick. Because only if you understand how they tick, you will then be able to, to, to measure their actions, to make the right decisions when you deal with them, um, have the right expectations. What is it that you can expect from the Germans when you go on operations? What is it that you can expect from the Brits, the French and all the other countries? And then of course also means that in order to form a coherent view, not only do you have to really drill into these extremely complex matters of history, society, um, nations, nations, traditions, all these things for one country, but you have to do it for every single country you deal with. And that is at the pure political stage and in the corridors of political power. And it also applies to the military sphere, the multi stage. And that could be, for example, during military operations. What is uh, the enemy's views? What is the enemy's understanding? How does the enemy again tick? But also, of course, it's not only about the other side. It's also about uh, the own side. In modern times, we normally fight coalition wars. So you need to understand how your partner ticks. What is his understanding? What is his, what's your common ground on certain things? And again, history, and in particular in the European context, the, the history of the Second World War, the legacy of the Second World War still plays a fundamental role in this. And last but not least, you also have to analyze your own country's history, tradition, and legacies. And that can be a very painful process because quite often, um, the views of a nation of particular past events do not necessarily mirror truth and reality. And Germany in this case is probably quite unique, you might say, because it really faced, um, faced its history and accepted its history. And so you only have to go to Berlin where you find now right bang in the center of, of Berlin, this huge monument uh, to, uh, to the exterminated Jews in Europe. And that's right next to the Brandenburg Gate. So that's a, it's an indicator of how Germany has, has dealt uh, with its past and also accepted its past. In other countries, you do, not, you do not really see that to the same degree. And of course, you might perhaps say that they don't have to because they didn't lose the wars. So they, they didn't have to have this very painful process. However, I would argue that if you want to understand your own country correctly 
and if you want to make the right decisions for your country um, and based on on your population's views and understanding you need to have an honest discussion of your own past as well because only that will then put into context your own political actions but will also explain to you how you are being seen by other nations because as we all know we all think individually we are great people um, we're good people we do the right sort of things but let's face it that's not always necessarily the case uh, when you talk to other people and their perceptions about you about you and that of course also applies to nations so if you want to manage these particular expectations if you want to understand how other nations see you you also need to understand your own history and how this is being viewed by other people so this was just very briefly to sum up and again to make perhaps you might say the plea to start analyzing your own history uh, and then relate that to to other nations history because as i said without that it's very difficult to act competently in the political and also in the military sphere we could only scratch the surface but if this relatively short presentation has made you think about certain things and started your brain going on traditions, history, legacies and such like, I think I've achieved what I set out to achieve and I would like to thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Goodbye.